Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. I really, to a fault, give people the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I have a personal experience of my own redemption. So when I meet someone that has negative or dysfunctional qualities, I see in them the thing I see in myself, like, man, I just got to raise them up. That compassionate, understanding part of me, which I really value, has a downside to it. I'm not really conveying how upset or concerned I am because I want them to like me. I want to be a nice guy. And I certainly don't want anything to escalate into screaming or violence. A lot of my lessons around it were looking at my self-worth and why I had such a difficult time advocating for myself. The kind of light side and the shadow side, that is the part of me that I'm working with like right now. My boundaries were porous until I finally had the realization that it was about how I felt about myself. Well, why am I like, say, people pleasing? I'm people pleasing because I'm a nice person. If I really bore down a bit, it's not that I want to be a kind person. It's that I want the other person to view me as a kind person. Yeah. Right. It's like I want them to think I'm a good boy. That approval seeking. Yeah. It's easy to hide behind the nice guy and being agreeable and being passive, but going into it, calibrating too soft doesn't solve anything. But if I just go full frontal assault, then it escalates the situation. How do I bring those two together where I still have the open heart? Do no harm, take no shit. I mean, that's it. That's it. So dude, this is round two. The last time you came on, we we're obviously in my at my home and in where I used to record. You were in a bit of a whirlwind with your house. And I remember we we kind of had limited time and I mean it was awesome, but I was like, I can't wait to have you back on. So I'm glad that we finally made this work. It's really good that we finally made it work and also that our house is finally done enough to live in. Yeah, that was a that was a really crazy period. There were so many lessons in that both fit, physical and metaphysical. So what like what was what was going on kind of at a you know, uh not really a meta level, but what was going on kind of from the outside, you know, for me, if I was looking at everything that was unfolding, it was this, but like what were some of your takeaways? Like what were you forced to confront through that? Well, I think the internal lessons were, I mean, I could put it very uh, succinctly and that is hire slowly, fire quickly. Yeah. Wow. And the hire slowly part I've gotten pretty good at with businesses that I've had over the years because I've learned that lesson before you know, really vetting someone for um, not only competence, but also integrity. To me, those are the two pillar qualities that are required for me to interact with anyone and two qualities that I do my best to uphold. But in our situation, I mean, it was like, (laughs) I don't want to overstate it and um, sort of uh, discount true refugees, but we were kind of fleeing California. And I was in a real hurry to do so. And uh, that being the case, when we were prospecting Austin, we only had two weeks over the course of Christmas break in 2020. And so, you know, we looked at a bunch of places and we're just like, well, 
it's so competitive here, right? That we better just make a decision. Or if we go back to California and try to do it remotely and have our realtor send videos or some shit, like we just need to look at a place, be like, it's good enough. Let's put an offer in. Because things were going like really fast. So it's not even like you'd have time to come look at a a house. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we, you know, we put an offer in quickly just based on our intuition and that was a great decision. Our house is perfect for us for right now. Uh, and maybe for a while, but then when we moved here, of course, we just wanted to move right in and just get it going. So rather than interviewing a number of general contractors and getting references uh, from people that they've worked with and, and such, uh, we just kind of went with the first guy who was recommended by a realtor and God bless him. He had had positive experiences with him. So he didn't know it was going to turn into such a shit show, but um, we hired the first guy and, and it became apparent that he was incompetent pretty fast, but it took some time to see that he lacked integrity and that he wasn't honest and was doing some shady maneuvering. Um, so the, the, the lesson was like really shop around when it's a, a role that's that important, right? You might hire a plumber, an electrician, and they did a shitty job or overbuild you or something, but that's, you know, it's a subcontractor. It's not like the pinnacle of your project, which, um, in the case of a general contractor certainly is. So that was kind of just the nuts and bolts of it. But there were many points along that journey where my internal life had become totally unmanageable, right? Just what it was doing to me mentally and emotionally and the level of stress that it was creating which would be inherent to any time you're going to gut a decent sized house and like basically rebuild it from the ground up, which is what we did. I mean, of course, everyone knows that's ever done that. It's stressful and supply chain issues and whatever things go wrong. But add to that the fact that I'd never done it before and the person that we hired to manage it was incapable of doing so. And so things were constantly going wrong, but I didn't know how to pull the plug when I'd already given someone a bunch of money and like, how do you determine say halfway through a job? Like, all right, we're just going to cut ties here. How do you figure out who owes who the money? Right. And we're never going to agree on that. So I don't want to go into litigation and get in, in a bunch of drama. So I just kept kind of excusing this person's behavior and just kind of hanging in there. Trying Um, to get to the finish line. Yeah. And also we were in an apartment, um, in B cave on the highway on the third floor. Like that is not your vibe (laughs) or Allison's. Yeah. And thankfully we're very compatible and we get along in all conditions. So it wasn't hard on our relationship per se, but it's just can't have people over. It's, it's just whack. Um, so, but uh, you know, I'm grateful that we had the resources, right. To have an apartment and a house. And I've went and written an office slash podcast studio, even at some point, cause I realized it was going to take so long. So long story short, short, what could have been and should have been in an ideal situation, like a six month project ended up being uh, a year and a half. But within that, the real lesson is, which of course kind of came after the fact, and we'd gone through three general contractors by the time we were done. Um, and you know, it was just, it was just a total, uh, shit show all the way through. Very few of the people we hired were of high caliber. So the ones that were really stand out, like our painter, which we had to paint the house three times because the first two times sucked so bad. <laughs> so the third time we painted the entire interior of the house, Amazing. Jason uh, from Lime Painting. Uh, shout out to Jason, Lime Painting, Austin, Texas. 
but the real, the real lessons were that I had this very codependent relationship going with this general contractor, right? Because I had fears about like what we would lose or how we could be harmed if I cut ties and kind of making excuses for them because I have a tendency to be what would be on the positive side, diplomatic and fair, and just understanding that inherently all people are good. Shadow side of that is naivete and being a pushover and people pleaser and being uh, very uncomfortable with conflict. And so what I really learned outside of just the pragmatic logistical side of getting a job done on your house is to learn how to be more direct and be more honest. And that's one thing that really came out of it because I did a lot of work around this because it was, it was really disruptive and really challenging situation. I, I, and I realized that it's a good problem to have. You bought a great house, like big deal. But when you're in the middle of it, it really sucks. <laughs> so a lot of my lessons around it were looking at my self-worth and why I had such a difficult time advocating for myself and learning how to train my nervous system to deal with the discomfort of confrontation and to have tough conversations and, and to just actually at the root of it is just to be honest. And I consider myself to be a really honest person because I don't lie, cheat, steal. Right. But there's another, another level of honesty, which is like showing up at the house and the thing's wrong and we need to have a talk, but I'm not really conveying how upset or concerned I am or really putting that person on the spot because I want them to like me. I want to be a nice guy. And I certainly don't want anything to escalate into screaming or violence. Right. And so that diplomatic, compassionate, understanding part of me, which I really value, I, I really am that way, um, has a downside to it. When push comes to shove, the, it's sometimes appropriate to just put people in their place. And sometimes what that place is, is like, you know what, you're doing a really shitty job, you're fired. And just being willing to accept whatever that aftermath entails. If it is a lawsuit or you owe someone money or they owe you money and you'll never get it back kind of thing. So, um, you know, in hindsight, it's difficult for me to say, I wouldn't have it any different because I learned so much. I actually would do, do it different. <laughs> Good for you. you. Know? And there's a lot of things in my life that have been very tragic that I would, I would not replay because it's made me who I am. But that situation really, I mean, I, you know, I probably lost quite a bit of hair. I mean, I was just so stressed out and just, just in fight or flight, you know, off and on for a year and a half, which is how I used to live for most of my life until just a few years ago when I actually just, I feel pretty damn good most of the time. And I don't, I don't really have unsolvable problems in my subjective experience. Most things that I hit up against, I can find a solution to uh, relatively quickly. So with that one, yeah, it was, it was like lessons on lessons on lessons, just so many layers of ways in which, um, I realized I could evolve and, and change and, and not have those situations happen again. Right. Cause there's, there actually is no lesson if I don't do something differently, right? Like you can have a realization and kind of own your part in any sort of a, a difficulty, take responsibility for it. And that's a good start. But then what happens next time I need to hire someone, for example, right? Am I, am I going to just go, ah, oh, they're good enough. We're in a hurry. We just want to get in the house. Like it's fine. Or am I actually just going to be patient and, 
you know, talk to as many people as they need to talk to until I've found the right one, you know? So yeah, when we did that last one, if, if that was the case, as you said that I was in the middle of that, I mean, it's like, it was just all consuming, you know? Yeah. Well, like, Oh, another, another lesson I learned. Oh goodness. And this might be good takeaway for anyone listening aside from just kind of the inner, you know, experience of it is if I were to do it again, which I probably will, I would never totally remodel an existing house. I would either tear the whole thing down and build a new house or probably more wisely get some land and just build the house that you want. Because a lot of it was like just taking a house that was built in 2004. I didn't really, you know, a few families lived in it. It hadn't been maintained that well. And it was just a bit outdated and it wasn't really to our style. It's just kind of worn in, you know, and I wanted a new house. Um, so that actually created so much extra stress for myself because, you know, just picking out every little thing, just tile and finishes and appliances and plumbing and everything that goes into it. You don't even, you don't think about this stuff when you just walk into a house, like the light switches, the outlets, like how I want them to look and function. I want everything a certain way and add to that. The whole house is like EMF proof and there's no smart technology. There's no Wi-Fi. Everything's hardwired. It's very deliberately also kind of eco-friendly and biohacked. All of the lighting is like circadian lighting. It's, it's got all the things that I've always wanted to do. So being that I have a very specific aesthetic taste, uh, cause I'm just a really visual person and really um, sensitive to energies, just how things look and feel and also wanting the house to be as healthy as possible. So taking a house and trying to wrestle it into being all those things was a massive, massive undertaking that probably could have been diminished by 40 to 50% by just building the house that you want from scratch. Yeah. We had kind of a similar experience when, when we did our house and it took three and a half years to do it. Um, I think we were probably a year and a half longer than what would be normally expected. But to your point, we didn't keep anything in the existing house. We kept the footprint and that was it. Everything was new. So there was a house on your other house property? Before. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, everything's brand new. Everything's brand new. I thought you guys just bought the land and then like popped a really great house on it. No, we were really, I mean, we love the house, but yeah. it, it's, it would have been so much easier to level it. Cause we didn't, didn't keep anything yeah. from it. Yeah. Dude, as you're telling that it's so interesting that I'm asking about, you know, uh, that experience and we immediately drop into shadow work. And as you're, yeah. I don't know if you saw my reaction, but as you started to describe your, you know, the, the, the kind of light side and the shadow side, like that is like the, that is the part of me that I'm working with like right now, like all that awesome. stuff. It was as if I was saying those things. Awesome. And it is tough work. And it makes me think about when you go and do medicine, like, are you actually going to integrate what the awarenesses were that came up? And that's the yeah. real, that's the juice. Well, a lot of those awarenesses that, that I described came out of the medicine journeys, you know, like in the middle of that period. I mean, I, I don't know how many trips I took, but quite a few and of different variety. And so usually in that type of, um, scenario and that, you know, that could be going to a therapist or doing whatever, but for me, it just happened to be sitting in ceremony. So 
usually the way it goes is I kind of want to clear out anything out of my field that needs to be worked through so that then I can get into more of the outward um, service, what I can contribute, give creative ideas, solving creative dilemmas, things like that. Like the fun stuff, you know, envisioning a book, you know, thinking about how I can just more fully express myself in the world and, and all of that. But if there's, if there's gunk in the way, that's usually kind of the first thing that, that comes up for me that needs to be cleared. And then, and then it'll move more into not so much like deep healing work and shadow work. Then it's, you know, more visionary stuff and, and deep prayer and communion with the divine and whatnot. So a lot of those journeys that took place in that year and a half were me going like, what is happening here? You know, why am I in this situation that's so rare in my life? I mean, I just don't invite experiences like that in as much as I use. I mean, my life was all that before. I mean, it was just conflict, drama, just nonstop. So a lot of that did, um, was instigated by that, which was actually beautiful. And, and add to that another piece. And that is now it's not only me and my inner experience of well-being, how I'm feeling emotionally, the way that I'm spending my energy, my thoughts, like so much of that was in conflict, but now I'm in the role of a husband who has willingly assumed the responsibility of creating our home as a temple and as my kingdom and me as the king for my queen in service of my queen, of my wife, Allison. And so the unmanageability and the chaos that was taking place, like I'm kind of used to that, even though it was very uncomfortable, but my wife is not at all used to it. And <laughs> yeah, I'm the that. one that stepped up and was like, we're buying this house. I'm going to do all the things. And so they're not so much at first, but when it kept dragging on and on, she's sitting there going, dude, why are we still working with this guy and kind of holding my feet to the fire in a, in a loving way. But now my lack of ability to confront the situation and find some finality to its solution is also infecting her and our relationship. Right. She's like, dude, why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't you being a king right now? Yeah. And then I'm like, I'm trying God. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm doing everything I can. And she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily have the solution. You're like, okay, I'm going to step in. We're going to fire the guy. Like, she's like, Hey, I'm following your lead here, but your lead is starting to really suck. So there was, there was that element of it too, which, which actually has been, then we moved in and of course there's still things to do and you got the pool guy now and you know, different people that are supportive of your, your space. Um, and this, these are things that I never did because I always rented. Right. But there's been really great lessons in actually, I think it's codependency is what it is. It's like, I'll let people into my inner circle that have distortions in their field that are dysfunctional because there's a part of me that's very used to that sort of dysfunctional dynamic, even though I've evolved and grown and I'm, I'm much healthier emotionally than I've ever been. Uh, still, you know, that's, those are character defects that are still somewhat active. And thankfully, you know, I love Allison for this is she's really encouraged me to stand up and address those issues and those distortions with these relationships with I have with people because they have to do with our home and they have to do with her. 
it's not just me out and work. And I got this guy I work with, he's a little shady, but like she never meets him. It doesn't affect her. It's like all of the kind of home management stuff uh, is where this stuff is showing up for me. And she then won't feel safe essentially because she's very intuitive and her gifts are, you know, (laughs) the good news and the bad news that my wife sees everything in every person, you know, and um, is, is, I think has stronger boundaries than I do. You know, I'm very kind of loosey goosey with my boundaries. And if there's some dysfunction, I kind of let it slide because it's too awkward to like bring it up or sever an unhealthy dynamic between someone. She's not like that at all. She's just like, nope, not working for me. Bye. And she does it with loving kindness. Yeah. So she's, she's great at that. So I've learned so much from her in that how important it is for me to honor her observations and her intuition when something feels off with someone or especially if it involves bringing people into our home like if i'm opening the castle gate and letting in some scoundrels and i'm just like oh they're a good person underneath everyone's got he's got a good heart she's like fuck their good heart i don't feel safe this is our home you know and so it's it's helped me learn how to have better boundaries and also to, to rely more on her in, intuition about these things and also to be informed by some of the things that she sees and actually become a student of her seership or seerism. Because I'm just kind of naive sometimes with people. And I, I really, to a fault, give people the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I was <laughs> such a sick person early in my life and did so many fucked up things to so many people and most of all to myself. And so I have a personal experience of my own redemption and how like the, the dramatic strata of levels of consciousness that I've risen from where I started. I got, I got a ways to go as I'm describing in certain areas, but ways I behaved in the past that were so harmful to people and just so selfish and self-centered. I'm just not that way anymore. And being, you know, I was an addict and just, just a dark person and I'm not that way. So when I meet someone that has some lingering negative or dysfunctional qualities, I see in them, the thing I see in myself, like, man, I just got to raise them up, like hang in there. They're going to, they're going to change, you know? And so in that is a bit of, um, naivete where, where I think everyone is on the path that I'm on. And even if they're kind of fucked up still, if I just stick with them and support them, they're going to grow and evolve out of that. But the reality is that a large percentage of the human population has no interest in evolving or looking at themselves or taking responsibility or any of the things that, that I'm interested in, you know? So yeah, so all of that, this has been the past couple of years, really, since we've been here, that's been, I would say the majority of my teaching you know, I'm not that I'm teaching, but what I'm learning, right. It's like, okay, wow. I really have very porous boundaries at times. And I really, um, at times lack discernment about people. And, um, as, as much as those qualities of compassion and empathy are really positive qualities and some of my, my best strengths, they also do have that shadow side, uh, where one, um, has a tendency to become passive and to just put up with things that are actually beneath what I deserve and what we all deserve. Every person deserves that. It's like how much shit is one going to put up with? And for me, that's inversely related to my level of awareness 
and also what I internally believe that, that I deserve, right? So it's like if any of those shame or low self-worth um, aspects of my history or my personality are at play, they're going to invite in lower realms and be okay with it. So it's been a huge like self-esteem thing. Like, no man, I have a great wife who needs to feel safe in our house. We have this beautiful home. It's a sanctuary. And the home's really just a metaphor for the home within my entire life and my sphere of friends and uh, community. It's like, why am I ever settling for anything less than excellence? And if I am, the people who are not excellent aren't to blame. I have the opportunity to take responsibility for why I'm settling. Yeah, I think one of the things, again, this is so resonant for me in my journey, in particular, I would say lately too, because I had the unawareness, I don't know, three, it was called three years ago, where my boundaries were porous. And I was all those things that you were sharing and I was letting people in and not being super discerning until I finally had the, the realization that it was about how I felt about myself and when, when that self-worth was elevated and I felt, you know, kind of powerful in who I was, I stopped giving away my time for free and I'm not saying I'm charging people, but I started to really hold the importance of that and, you know, investments that I might just, you know, scratch a check to because some lower frequency reason that stopped. So all these things, I started to realize that when I started to feel strongly about how I was showing up, who I was, what I deserved, the boundaries just got super solid. And I recognized lately that that has kind of slipped into a different space. And like, I, I think about what, how you said you used to be, you lived in that world, you came out of it and it was like the universe saying, let's just see how you're doing with that thing again. And they dropped a fucking bomb on you. And it was deep learning. It's like, okay, so this is what, ha this is what can happen yeah. when I'm out of integrity with who I am. Yeah. And, and also aside just from the price of the emotional conflict within, in this particular case is also financially devastating. <laughs> you know, I mean, we probably spent conservatively twice what we would have or should have had things been done right. But realistically, because some things were done three times, like big jobs, right? Like painting, for example. I mean, if I put it all on paper and I was good at analyzing that kind of data, it probably cost us three times what it would have had things kind of gone well, or I pulled the plug on different people earlier, or, or we had vetted people more thoroughly and just been patient. So yeah, I mean, sometimes these behavior traits are, are costly in multiple categories of one's life. You know, I mean, like going into business with someone and you have kind of an intuitive feel, maybe they're not that honest, you know, can I really trust them, et cetera. Uh, yeah, it can be, can be devastating. The good news is though, guys like you and guys like me, many people listening, uh, hopefully <laughs> if, if you're not doing this, maybe, maybe you'll start now is, you know, it's for me like the victim archetype 
is readily available and like blaming everyone else for my problems. And like, why has this always happened to me? And well, how could we get so many shitty people working on this project? I'm such a good to- person. I see the good in people. Yeah, why, exactly. What the fuck? And so not falling for the temptation to be in the blame game, whether that blame is pointed inward and feeling like a loser myself or blaming other people, but to actually extract the lesson from those experiences. And what's fun is that I'm, I think in the past few years, I've started to actually see the lesson, even when I'm in the middle of the fire still, that's, you know, instead of having to look back two years later and go, God, what happened with this failed relationship or this business thing that went South? Oh, now I see it's because I did X, Y, and Z, right? It's like, how about just doing that self-inquiry in the eye of the storm, even if it hasn't all worked out, it is very empowering to take responsibility for whatever role I played in creating that dynamic. It's really empowering because then it's like, okay, well, I screwed up. Okay. And rather than like shaming myself about it and going into the wallowing and the self-pity and blame and all that, it's like, okay, the minute I take responsibility for any mistake I've made, it sends a message to my subconscious that I also have the ability to do something different or that I have the ability to find a creative solution to that problem. Now, now it's not like I'm in a rudderless ship, just kind of getting thrown around in a rough sea. Now I can actually course correct and, and turn that, you know, wheel a little bit, (laughs) a few degrees to the right. And it's like, Ooh, now we're going in a totally different direction solely because I looked inside and went, huh, what is it about me that's continuing to bring these same difficult circumstances into my experience? There's such a huge, uh, just, it's so, it's such a beautiful practice to just own shit, but don't own it with shame, own it with the enthusiasm of like, wow, that's good information. Now I have the opportunity and the agency to do something different. Yeah, there's that empowerment and obviously the, 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 the opposite of that is being powerless and that's where the victim comes in and everything's happening to me and I'm just at the, you know, uh, I'm on the receiving end of whatever anybody wants to throw my way. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people yeah. do live that way. And as we yeah. just shared, we both live that way from yeah. time to time. And yeah. it is very like, uh, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I want to say impotent, but there's like this, there's this piece to that, which I think uh, is super interesting as I've dug into this. And to to your point, I recognize this one particular uh, experience I had recently, very soon after. And uh, I was, I felt like I was being somewhat manipulated. And I allowed it to happen. And, you know, there was definitely some resentment at first towards the person. But then as I started to think about it, I was like, oh, that's on me. Like I allowed myself to be played. For you, is it, do you you ever have this awareness? And I don't know if I can articulate it, but okay. Say there's a situation that you need to confront with another person or you need to kind of move the goalpost of a boundary a bit further out or firm up a boundary. Sometimes with me, it's like, well, why am I like, say people pleasing, just to put it in a more general term. I'm people pleasing because I'm a nice person and I, and I want to be fair and understanding. Right. But 
for me, if I, if I really bore down a bit in those situations, it's not that I want to be a kind person. It's that I want the other person to view me as a kind person. Yeah. Right. It's I like want them that, to think I'm a good boy. That approval seeking. Yeah. It's like, it's not so much that I need to know I'm a good person. It's that I need them to know. Therefore I'll keep compromising my integrity and being dishonest essentially and putting up with things that I have no business putting up with really because I just don't want them to be mad at me. Yes. Right. So it's like learning how to uh, calibrate one's nervous system to totally be okay with not being liked or even scarier yet for me is to have someone really be pissed at me is difficult. And I've traced this one back. Um, because everything kind of goes back to your formative years if you if you care to look at it that way, which for me is is helpful. But when I was a kid, my dad was a, a raging, angry guy. Just did not have uh, control of his emotions. He was really just a hurt guy, you know, from his childhood and experiences he's had. He's since evolved, and we get along famously. And he's just the most loving, kind. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing man. Cause he's done a lot of work for like 40 years, you know? But when I was a kid, I was really soft and sensitive kid. I was raised by my mom. I didn't really live with him. He was a rugged guy. And so I developed this hyper vigilance and like fear of something being thrown against the wall or broken or just screaming fits, raging, you know, shit could pop off at any minute. You're not trying to start conflict. Yeah. So it's like, I learned how to recede within myself and just blend into the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's the, those ancient, well, in the context of at least my lifetime, they're ancient wounds that are still activated when a dynamic reminds me of that dynamic. The limiting thing about it is, and the thing that we have the opportunity to overcome is building my conscious awareness that I am not a little boy, that I am not powerless, that no one's going to hurt me and I can say and do whatever I want in order to protect myself, my wife, my home, right? It's like that scared little boy is still within my DNA. There's still muscle memory and subconscious, you know, neural pathways that are like, hide, hide, hide. For me, I'm like a hide and freeze guy. Yeah, I, I, I make myself invisible. It happens with me my relationship with Peyton, when I'm, I'm sensing something, I just make myself invisible. Yeah. And that's my way to retreat. And but, but see the trick with, with that trait is that it's also easy to hide behind your kindness, right? Yeah. Cause you, okay. I have a little brother who, I mean, we're years apart and have a different mom. He's my half brother, Cody. Shout out to Cody. If you ever hear this, but for whatever reason, his temperament was to, fight, not flight or freeze. And so he, he grew up with the same angry dad, the explosive divorce, just chaos and drama, but just out of the gate, the way he dealt with any situations was to attack and physically fight people. And so you would look at someone whose reaction to life is that of someone who is violent, angry, and proactive is like, Oh, they're a bad guy, but it's really just, a different side to the same coin, right? It's just how we just sort of innately or conditioned to respond to threats or perceived threats. 
but it's easy to hide behind the nice guy and being agreeable and being passive because you're not out there just punching people in the face and going to jail all the time. Right. You know, but within me is still that somewhere buried in there is still that warrior. Like my little brother has. So like his work has been to soften, to become more understanding, to really grow in the opposite direction that comes easily for me. My work is kind of to become more like my little brother. Right. And when it's appropriate and in an appropriate fashion and uh, with as much energy as is needed to be able to advocate for myself in a healthy, honest way, you know? So it's like, it's not about one way or the other. It's for me, it's kind of um, it's how to find a balance, like what's actually healthy and what's, what's true to my personality and, and what's reflective of my own sense of self-worth. How much shit am I willing to put up with? And if I'm not willing to put up with it, then how do I address it and rectify that situation? Because going into it, calibrating too soft doesn't solve anything because then I'm making excuses for people and for myself. And I let these distortions just kind of fester and I put them off and kind of brush them under the rug because they're so uncomfortable to deal with. But if I just go full frontal assault, then it escalates the situation and, and doesn't doesn't end in a conflict resolution because now you got two egos butting heads and just nothing's going to get done. Everyone totally goes unconscious, you know? So it's, it's an interesting conundrum as a man to find that, that, um, that middle road, right. Where here it is, here it is. I'm making a t-shirt of this, which I stole from some meme designer. So credit to them wherever they might be, but it's the yin and yang sign. And on one side, it says, do no harm. On the other side, it says, take no shit. Oh, yeah. Do no harm, take no shit. I mean, that's it, that's really. It. That's it. That's so, and, and you can take no shit without doing harm, too. Because, like, in a situation where I, I finally came to the conclusion that I was, what was bothering me a lot of the time with that drama with the house, for example, and this is just one example. I don't keep meaning to ramble on about renovating a house, but it's, it's about the lessons within that. It could be anything. But I was not being honest. I was being phony. When I would see this guy, I was like, hey, what's up, man? Like, that's not really how I feel. How I feel is like, dude, what is happening? The tile's wrong. (laughs) You know what I mean? But you're, you're, there's, I mean, if I'm you, I'm trying to appeal to his heart and get in a connection where there's maybe some honesty that comes out from him. But no, he's just going to run you over. But, But on the do no harm, take no shit thing, because truth always heals. I could have much more so taken the take no shit route and just been factually honest about what was happening and confront things calmly and honestly yet firmly. And ultimately, whether it was in that interaction or later in that person's life, the truth always elevates an experience for everyone involved. Even if one side is butthurt because they were on the receiving end of the taking no shit they're going to learn lessons that they need to learn that they wouldn't learn had you just been do no harm and just like, Oh, peace and love, love and light guy. Then no one's actually learned anything because there's, there's a lack of honesty there that gives everyone in the um, dynamic of the relationship an opportunity to go, huh? Wow. That was very uncomfortable. What's going on here. Right. Let's get to the bottom of this. This guy just fired me. What, what he's willing to walk away from the money he spent. I'm that bad he just like kicked my ass off the property, which is eventually what I did, by the way, which felt amazing, <laughs> you know, because I finally stood up for myself 
and just went, you know, I don't care what it's going to cost me because what it's costing me emotionally is priceless. And that's when you know you did the right thing when you, you forego, a, you know, a large financial piece and you feel so damn good about it. Yeah. Like that's out of, yeah. you know, our, our mind can't really make sense of that. But when you know, and you knew it's like that just felt, you yeah. felt it. You know, what's interesting about that? You just reminded me of something that I've experienced a few times. And that is in a healthy, appropriate way, my warrior has just stood up in situations with people and just fucking annihilated them. And I walked away feeling so good, like just happy, healthy, empowered. However, if I am unconscious and I attack someone, say I say something mean to my wife or I flip off a driver, if I'm like using aggression or anger indiscriminately and without the temperance of any wisdom, it's just coming out of an emotional reaction. I'll feel horrible and hung over from it. I'll get an emotional hangover because I was out of line. And it's an interesting thing for me as someone who's not really dramatically confronted that many people in my life, the times when I have done so that have just happened kind of spontaneously. And I, I kind of blow up on someone. And then afterward was like, who was that? Was this, was that me? Did I just do that? But it's so empowering because I finally stood up for myself and, and what seemed to me to be too aggressive was probably calibrated at just the right amount that was appropriate for that situation. But because I leaned so much onto the kind of keep the peace side, it seemed like, oh my God, did those things just come out of my mouth? But, but the key factor there is like how, how I feel afterward. I actually feel really good when I do it right. And I know that I don't, I'm not a sociopath or a psychopath, so I don't feel good when I hurt someone because I get some sort of ego boost or some kind of kink out of fucking someone's head up or something, right? Like, it's just, I don't roll like that. I feel really bad when I hurt people. Yeah. But it's interesting just the way that if you notice the way you feel emotionally after a conflict is a pretty good barometer of was my response a response or was it a reaction that was out of my control? You know, a response is going to just hold firm to the truth. It's going to be strong, but it's not going to be an attack on the other person. Yeah. Right? And, and I think, you know, what you talk about is it's so different, you know, when you come out like that, it's so different from where you sit, but you're on such one end of the spectrum, the love and light and everything's good that you have to traverse so far to get to that point that you're somewhere potentially around the middle of, of <laughs> yeah. that. And what totally. I think that it is, is it's like that integrated shadow comes out and it's fucking clarity and you're direct and you're impeccable with your word. And yeah, maybe there's some, some energy behind it and it feels like maybe a little rageful because it's, it's so far from maybe the normal, you know, keeping everything cool in the gang, but <laughs> I really, uh, That's funny. I, so much of that resonates for me. It's, you know, I had, I was a little bit more like your brother in that in for 20 years, I was on the trading floor. Yeah, I bet, I bet people pleasing doesn't get you very far in that field. Not at all. Yeah. You know, but there's, there's some element of it. You don't want to be a total dick all the time, but, but there was a, there was a, I, maybe it wasn't healthy, but in that arena, the shadow, the anger, the rage, that stuff was welcome. And 
it was beneficial to be able to tap into that. And, and as I was reflecting recently on this kind of one experience I had, um, where I, I feel like I, I allowed someone to walk all over me, it's like, oh, it's been 10 years and I haven't found a safe space or a safe way to express that shadow. I haven't maybe integrated it enough so I can come out with clarity because on the trading floor, I may have said some shit that was, you know, I wouldn't want my mom to hear, but there was clarity behind it. You know, maybe some name calling too, but there was, there was <laughs> the point was being made. There was no mincing of words. Uh, so for me, I recognize that my work is to, you know, I, I have softened. I've softened a lot over the last five years. Like, how do I take that soft part of me and integrate it with, you know, that warrior that was on the trading floor? And again, I'm not saying it was like the perfect warrior by any means, but there was an element of what I was doing. It was very intuitive and it was very honest. And so for me in, in everyday situations, how do I bring those two together where I still have the open heart? But, but that actually translates into me being super honest with you. And when I feel strongly about who I am and that self sense of self is really strong to your point earlier, I'm not concerned with how you receive it because I know I'm in my fucking truth. And if you take it the wrong way, that's your work. I can leave and put my head on the pillow and know that I was in integrity. And, and that's like, that's kind of the dance I'm right in the middle of right now. And I, I kind of played out in a recent meditation, actually in the float tank I got from, from Max Casa nice. was in there. This stuff was coming up and I, I just, I let my, my mind go with it. And I let the, I would say the, 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 the non-integrated shadow come up and like what I, how I would have responded. And it felt really good now it's not exactly how I wanted it to play out, but it was, it was harnessing the power of the shadow and having the clarity and standing my ground and standing up for myself and allowing the chips to fall where they may. And it just, gave, it almost gave me the encouragement, like, yeah, like work with that more. That's like, it's very in the kind of the, the rough stages of what it may look like for me, but that's, that's my work right now. So I love yeah. that we've kind of gone here because this yeah. is very, very much top of mind for well, it's, me. It's always fun talking to you and recording with you because I have no idea where it's going to go, you know, and <laughs> yeah. as is common too. It's, it's an observation uh, when I do guest appearances on other podcasts, because most of the time I interview people on my podcast, uh, I'll find myself kind of being more vulnerable than I want to be. Like, even as we've been talking, there's been a part of me that's like, dude, you don't want people to know you're still like working on this shit. You're supposed to have it figured out. You know? And I just laugh. Yeah. You know, I just laugh at that. Uh, oh, I love that the ego comes yeah, in. I, I just laugh at that part of myself. It's one, it wants to protect me. Right. It's like, wants to be cool. Have it, have it all figured out. But well, that's one of the things I love about you is you, 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 um, you entertain that thought, you know, and you even just shared it. Right. Yeah. But you don't let it actually dictate what comes out of your mouth. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the key to the whole thing is witness observer consciousness, right? Because you have 
your persona, you have your intellect, you have, you have your ego, you have all of these kind of composite pieces of what makes you, you, and they're all necessary for, for one to have a life. Like it's, you got to have an ego. You would never take a shower or, you know what I mean? It's like in order to differentiate myself from everything else, it's just part of the animal kingdom, right? I mean, more so with humans because the development or lack thereof of our brains, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> but in order for me to be a me and for Cal to be a Cal, there needs to be this separate identity. And we call that the ego. And its job is to look for resources in danger, right? And it does a great job of doing that. And I'm glad it's there. But if I don't have an awareness of it as a separate entity, although it's part of me, but it, it's not, it isn't the totality of me. So if I don't have an awareness of it or the tool that it primarily uses, the intellect, right? The mind that has all these thoughts about the way that it feels. So the ego feels something and the mind's like, all right, we'll figure this out and we'll make a story around it. <laughs> if there's not a grown up in the room, <laughs> that shit is going to be pretending like it's me. So I love the game of being active in my life as I am sitting here talking to you and allowing all those elements of myself to be present and to just play with them. So as I say something to you that could really come from the heart, that's, it's true wisdom. It lacks pretense or any sense of, uh, it's not performative. It's just like, man, this is the raw truth coming through me. I'm channeling my inner truth to you and whoever's listening yet at the same time, because all of that is so dynamic that it's fun to observe from that witness perspective, when the ego or intellect wants to interject and frame things a certain way, or when, <laughs> yeah. when something's come out and then ego's like, why did you just admit to that? Right? <laughs> it's like, who's in charge of this thing that we call life. And I, I think the, the fun for me and the magic is in use the word integration, right? Is allowing myself to have the integrity to be whole and complete with all of those parts of myself. And the most entertaining part of it is for me is when I, when I meditate, for example, there's a me there consciousness, me that's observing thoughts and feelings that come up. And so, because there's no other stimuli and my eyes are closed and I've practiced it for a couple decades, then there's a, there's always some degree of me there observing the phenomenon of the mind and the ego. Right. And it's much easier to do when you're meditating because it's a discipline and you've practiced doing it and it's, you're in a special place at a special time. And it's, you know, it's got a, a start point and an end point. This is the time when I observe the phenomenon of the thoughts and feelings. Right. But the integration of meditation is recording a podcast and also be meditating at the same time. Yeah, right. Wow. And, and that's, so yeah. that's, that's what I intend to do all the time in my, in my waking life is to be in a, in an infinite meditation wherein I'm still being a Luke, having a personality. I have the jokes I have and, you know, I have my little spiel, right. I'm playing the Luke role, yeah, yeah. which is great. It's yeah. beautiful. There's no one else that can play that role and there's no one else that can play the Cal role. 
But if there's not an adult in the room of someone who's observing that and kind of has agency over who's expressing at any given moment, uh, I'm going to fall back asleep. I'm going to go unconscious and then I'm going to get myself into situations that aren't advantageous to me or other people. And I'm going to really miss every opportunity I have to evolve and grow and learn. So as I'm sitting here with you, I'm also meditating and more than anything, I'm praying, you know, I'm, I'm aware of my relationship to God, to the divine, to consciousness, right? So it's like, if you have a boring life, anyone listening, if you're like, oh, I'm just bored, I'm restless, man, start to uh, build a model wherein your prayer and meditation is your actual life as you act out what you're here to do. I'm sure many people are, but for me, that's, that's what keeps things interesting, right? It's like, sure. I have a set time. Alice and I often sit at the altar and we do prayers together. We close our eyes. We, we call in divinity and we express and give thanks and ask for things we need help with and all that. But there's also just the principle of conscious contact, which is just remaining in contact with the unseen realms, with God, just carrying that with me so that my words become a prayer, the way I feel, the way I hold myself, everything I say and do is imbued with an awareness that God is present in everything all the time. Now, of course, I forget all of that. And, you know, somebody cuts me off and I'm like, ah, or I'm late or you know, whatever. Like life happens. The I are, for me, the good one to gauge like how present I am in that experience is the letter from the IRS. Those are my favorite. Go to the mailbox to Luke's story from internal revenue. What is it? Service. I don't know who's serving who in that relationship, but um, <laughs> those are the ones, you know, and then it's like, okay, how can I pray through the opening of this letter and observe my nervous system and the stories that I start to create about how the man is going to hurt me, right? Or that I'm going to lose something I have or not get something that I want. Um, you know, the wife says, Hey, can we have a talk later? Something's bothering me, <gasps> you know, like in those, in those situations that could be triggering, that's the very best time for me to see how expansive that awareness can be. Right. And, and what's helped me a lot with that um, is not just meditating for a long time, but really, I mean, I always kind of give this disclaimer. I I don't think everyone in the world should go do psychedelics, but for me in the past few years, having not used any mind altering substances prior to that for 22 years, when I started to explore those realms, it's become much easier for me to remain tethered into that field of consciousness or God and all the things that I just described here in this last little section, it's become much easier for me because each time I've gone into those realms at depth, all of this <laughs> part of me that I'm observing gets subjugated temporarily. And there's a much more direct experience of a broader reality, right? Like the veil to the reality that I experience here where my senses make up reality. When the senses are shut off or expanded, then one realizes that there's, you know, the 99% of reality that we don't experience all the time is still always here. Yeah. Right. This interdimensional element of those experiences and to the integration it's like, take something like 5-MeO-DMT, 
is my probably my favorite thing in life to talk about. So I won't get off on a on a bufo tangent, but those experience true experiences for me have truly been the most impactful experiences of my entire life. Like my entire worldview and just presence in my reality is changed because of those specifically. And the biggest part of the change is in having kind of a diffuse relationship with this realm, this earthly material realm. It's much more playful. Like I'm here, but I'm not all here in a positive sense, right? Some people would say I'm not all here (laughs) the other way. He's not all there, right? But it's like, I'm sitting here with you. I'm looking out the window. Lindsay's sitting over there and Cal, there's just, there's a big part of me that's not even here. And just, it's totally just like in a video game kind of, you know, not that it doesn't have meaning or value. It does. But I just know that there's more to our experience sitting here than what our senses are able to perceive. That God that, you know, is so clear to me in a journey and you're just, there's no denying it. You're just, you're talking to it. It's talking to you. It's a, it's a thing. It's real. It's tangible. It's giving you answers. You're asking questions. It's healing parts of you that you can't get to any other way. At least this has been my experience. Again, I'm not you know, saying this would be everyone's, but it, it has been mine. The work is in taking that experience out into life and, and, and reminding myself to make that a practice, right? So it's like, say I was on ayahuasca right here and I'd be looking at you. I would see the majesty of everything that you are and our souls would be able to connect in a deep and profound way. Let's just say one thing that could happen, right? Well, that reality that I'm experiencing in that moment is also present right now. Yeah, It's exactly the same. And it's always the same, no matter where you are and with whom you're sharing that time. It's just that because you can't function in that realm in the way the world is set up, that you take something exogenously and portals open into these unseen realms. And then those portals close and you come back and you pay the bills and you be a good husband and you do your, you go to the bank, right? But all of that realm that we get to experience is also still here. So how can I stay in that realm where the real peace is and where that felt sense of meaning and connection to the divine is, but also go about the business of being a householder and getting the car fixed and changing the oil and doing all the things, right? Life would be so dull if I didn't have the opportunity to try to manage that, right? Or maybe not manage is in the right word, just to allow that to unfold so that, so that my waking time is meditation time. My waking time is prayer time so that life takes on a purpose of expressing God through me and through the personality. And in that, what's required is to gain an understanding of how the intellect and how the ego operate. Because if you don't know <laughs> like the mechanics of how they function, it's very difficult to see them and, and get some separation so that you can observe them and not be controlled by them. Right. It's like the pain body as Eckhart Tolle calls it. It's like, I mean, you, I go on social media and I'm just like, if there's a sick part of me that loves to see 
conflict with other people. Yeah. Just I'll watch videos of just people fighting in a Walmart or some shit, you know, and it's part of it's just observing the human expression, right? You just see, oh, wow, there's just two pain bodies that are just traumatized and unhealed and they're just attacking each other like animals just to see people in their animal nature. If I am unaware of my own animal nature, or if I try to fight it or to discount it or to hide it, then it's going to express in some ways beyond my purview that are beyond my control, right? So it's like marrying and integrating and accepting the totality of who I am as a person in a meat suit, as an animal with animal needs and an ego machine that's trying to like make it survive and the mind that's trying to strategize and, 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 uh, and, and manage, micromanage everything, control everything. Like if I don't see those parts of myself, not only does life become dull, but those things eventually take over. Yeah. And then my soul is like, Hey, yo, over here, what happened? (laughs) What happened to the spiritual practices? Right. And that's why they call them practices. Yeah. So let's, for, for people listening that maybe don't have these practices or haven't had experience in the, the, the plant medicine realms, how do they get a, a little taste of, of, of what you're talking about? How to turn their life? Well, you can join my coaching program. <laughs> I don't have a coaching the big, program. The big uh, lead up. Yeah. Yeah. I said all that to say, here's the landing page. Uh, yeah. So like, no, yeah, how I do mean, they make their life a prayer? And, and yeah. you know, and I'm not saying to people like you're going to turn your life into a prayer tomorrow, but like getting little, touches on what it would mean, how things could be different, how your perspective changes when you have more awareness around this and you do see God in all things. Well, for me, Cal, the foundation of everything I just said is held in the principle of surrender. And unfortunately, the process of surrender. And when I say surrender, it's like surrendering to the great reality, surrendering my life to God, to the will of God. I mean, many people are going to bristle at that because it sounds religious, but understanding and accepting one's limitations, getting a sense of humility about like what your place is in the world and specifically what elements of my experience can I truly control and which are out of my control? And for me, the foundation of all of that is in surrendering my life to a higher power. That's difficult for many people because as long as you're achieving what you perceive to be success by being run by the ego, the ego will never let you surrender your will. Those of us that have uh, been in addiction are fortunate and many people have their own, you know, it might be a divorce, losing a career, bulimia, whatever, right? Like hitting a bottom where you're like, okay, I've given life everything I got. I've thought about it, you know, a lot. My mind has tried to figure out how to make life work. I've exerted all of my will into the situation and I am still meeting resistance or failure. For me, the failure was subjectively and objectively so clear to everyone. And so that put me in a place of true desperation and 
and true teachability and open-mindedness and humility because I was in so much pain and suffering when I was an addict. And so it wasn't like I checked myself into treatment. I had my big surrender moment and then my ego never came back and tried to run my life again. But what it did for me was have a huge turning point or kind of a punctuation mark in the story of my life, wherein I really tried to do it on my own until I was 26 years old and having no experience of spirituality or God or religion or anything. It's just animal survival. I hurt inside. I got to take drugs so that I don't hurt. And I don't care who I hurt in my pursuit of alleviating my hurt. Right. And when it got to the point for me of that like quintessential hitting bottom, it wasn't even anything external in my life. I didn't like, you know, get stabbed or go to prison or get kicked out of my apartment. Although I was very close to that. <laughs> I used to have a stack of eviction notices and I wish I still had them. It'd be, be like a dope piece of art oh my God, to just yeah. like frame all of my old eviction notices. <laughs> yeah. And my rent was only like $450 a month. And I was like, I can't do it. Can't do it. I'm 25. That's way too much money. But, uh, you know, it was an internal thing, just the level of self-hatred, self-loathing, the shame, the hopelessness, the helplessness, the powerlessness. I mean, all of my resources were exhausted. So I think I was really fortunate in that way because it's like, I'm done. Like raise the white flag. There is no fight left in me. And I was really able to submit myself to addiction recovery programs and and I was just really committed. I will go to India to learn meditation. I'll do the things like I'm suffering. And so how someone to your question can do that is to start examining, even if your life hasn't totally tanked, examine those parts of your life that are still unmanageable, those ways in which you're addictive or habituate, addicted or habituated to negative thinking, negative feeling, conflict in your relationships, the inability to have healthy intimacy, laying in bed at night and your mind won't stop thinking about your problems and you can't make it stop. It's like we all have our own level of bottom. And in order to get there, it doesn't necessarily require that you burn your life to the ground. I think it can require, or I think what would suffice is to just acknowledge the ways in which you're still dysfunctional and the ways that you're still caught in illusion, right? So it's like finding your own bottom and surrendering those parts of yourself that you can't help change or control. If you've tried to lay in bed at night and stop thinking and it doesn't work, well, that's a perfect opportunity to surrender one's thoughts to a higher power. You know, And I, I like the term higher power because it's, um, it's open-ended, you know, God is a heavy word. I don't have a problem with it because I wasn't yeah. raised with religion, but you know, I say the divine or source or God, the universe, it's all the same thing, right? It's, it's the, it's the source of, of, of loving energy that makes your heart beat when you lay down and go to sleep. Because every night we, we all surrender. We all surrender our lives to God. We just don't think about it. It's just, you just take it for granted that there's, there's some magical force in the universe that causes this electrical surge to run through your body and this balance of all of these chemicals within your body that make your body stay alive, right? Or the thing when you, you know, plant the acorn and 75 years later, there's a massive oak tree. There's something that's doing that. So call it what you will. 
And for me, just framing my life around being in service of whatever that thing is that I'm, that thing is giving me and has given me my life. And in return, I'm giving it back. And I'm saying, Hey, like, I know this is a temporary rental from the, <laughs> the field of consciousness itself. And whatever God is, has chosen to express itself uniquely as Luke's story in this short period of time, starting in 1970. Right. But I'm only just one degree of separation away from that creator. And so if I can have some intellectual humility, it's actually very empowering to know that, <laughs> that the, the infinitely powerful part of myself is actually the God part of myself. And the limited part of me is my own willpower and my own ability to think and act. But very little of what goes on in my life is actually under my control anyway. So what if I just created a framework or a basis of my life where the purpose of my life is to serve my higher power? And that's the foundation of all of the practices that for me have been helpful. So if that's kind of the framework that I've chosen for my life here, then out of that comes practices like meditation where I can actually deliberately get in touch with that part of myself who's observing all of the activities that go on in my day-to-day -day life, all of the thoughts, all of the feelings. It doesn't require that one takes plant medicines or anything. It's like we're in this house there's all of these different openings to the house. There's a beautiful window right there and there's doors all over and, and windows, but it's the same house. If I want to get in this house, it's just which opening appeals to me. It might be talk therapy, it might be EMDR, it might be uh, clinical hypnosis, it might be getting in a float tank, it might be learning Vedic meditation, which was the case for me. It might be listening to Joe Dispenza meditations, it might be um, spending time alone in nature, you know, going on a vision quest, all of God's windows lead into the same mansion, you know? So it's kind of a matter of personal preference and what someone's drawn to, you know? And for me, I'm just wired. Like I want to try all the windows. I'm going yeah, yeah. to try every window, yeah. every door, every nook and cranny. Cause I want to get in that goddamn house because when I'm in the house of God, you know, so to speak, my life is much easier. And I find that those things that I spend so much energy and time trying to control don't even need to be controlled because they're already under the agency of something infinitely more intelligent than me alone. <laughs> you know? So then it becomes like the surrender at first out of that desperation and hitting bottom is like, you take it all. Like I'm done living my life according to my plan, your plan, but then it becomes more of a partnership, right? Where it's a relationship. It's not just like, Oh, I'm just laying out in the garden, waiting for God to move my body over to the garage. You know, it's like, no, I'm proactive. I'm taking cues and it's a, it's a two way relationship and it's dynamic. But I think the key point is the, um, you know, that principle of, of living one's life like a prayer. And that takes the sacredness of life and 
expands it into the whole of my experience rather than that being a set aside time where I'm going off and doing a spiritual thing over here for a few minutes and I'll come back and it's just business as usual. I find the biggest change and the more flow and just uh, magic in my life, the more mystery and synchronicity and all those things unfold, the more that I I'm able to integrate that relationship, you know, based on with that surrender as the foundation. It's like, yeah, I still have to make decisions. I have to do things or not do things. I go here. I don't go there. I'm making business decisions. I have relationships. I'm coming over here. Like I'm not trying to evade my life or responsibilities. I'm doing my best to integrate my spiritual practices into all of the filler space between them so that my whole life is a spiritual practice because in reality, and I'll close with this because I could go on on this shit forever. <laughs> it's so interesting to me. Hopefully it is to someone else too. It's like, there's no need to find God because that's all there is. Yeah. Right there. That's all there's, that's all any of this is. It's just that, we get the benefit of dreaming <laughs> that there's some separation between the thing that created it and the thing that was created. Right. And it's the, it's the dream of separation and it's, it's, it's our greatest gift because if we didn't have the dream of separation and we were just still in the field of consciousness in its totality, and we were just, Godhead as a whole and not an individuated expression of consciousness, then there would be no way for us to find our way back because we'd already be there. (laughs) So it's like, we have to become separate and believe that we're separate so that we can have the benefits of learning what it takes to get back to oneness out of the perceived separation. So this whole thing is a game that's been created for us to give us a platform and the contrast to rise through the levels of consciousness. Because if we were just in a highest state of say Christ consciousness, then there would be nowhere to go. So we would just be merged with the totality of God of creation, right? It's like God expresses itself infinitely as us people and everything else almost as it's playing a game with itself so that part of itself can find its way back to what it is it's like you have a tapestry that's made of all these threads right a tapestry left undisturbed is just the field of consciousness god right but in order for it to know itself it has to express itself as all these threads there are all these planets and solar systems and people and plants and animals and all these things. So it goes and just exponentially and infinitely expresses itself in all these ways. And we're one of those ways. And yet there's a part of us that knows like, I got to get back into the tapestry and weave myself back into that. And that's the game. That's the fun. You know, that's somebody runs into you while you're getting gas. And it's like, Ooh, how quickly can you see God in their eyes? And just get back there when your nervous system is like under threat, under threat, red alert, red alert, you know? And so that's where that becomes a prayer, you know? And then, and then you find yourself like, and you know, not in a people pleasing way, like not based on what we just covered earlier, but it's like, then all of a sudden that person hits you 
And instead of a week later, you going, oh man, that must've kind of sucked for them too. Right. When you walk up to their car, you see the fear in their eyes and you go, oh, this is really sucking for them. I am them. They are me. It's actually an illusion that we appear to be two different people. It's like two waves that arise out of the ocean. They appear to be two waves, but they're really just ocean expressing itself as a wave. Ooh, I like that. I didn't make it up. I mean, it's a yeah. it's very popular in the, in the, in the Vedic worldview, but it, it really is probably the best analogy for like consciousness and our, our single expression as a, as a person, right? Each personality. So it's not like I'm trying to not be a wave. I'm being the best Luke story wave I can be but I do my best to remind myself that I'm actually just the ocean, you know? And so that, that's where the, that's where the, um, the, the joy and the interest and the intrigue, it's like, Oh, okay. So I could be a wave and express myself in all these creative, unique ways that are unlike anyone else that's ever been or anyone else that will ever be. There's only one special me and all my flaws and all my, positive attributes and everything that makes me up. But ultimately even the me is an illusion because the me is the wave. And that really what I am is the expanse of the sea. So I got to keep, you know, one toe in the water of that sea and allow, you know, this hand to come up and be the wave and find my place in the middle because it's clear that since I was made into a person that that's what I'm here to do. And underneath all of that is the surrender of knowing that I'm just the sea. So that's the gift of duality. Yeah, it seems so. It's, it seems so, you know, because I had a really, well, many, but really one very profound experience of that with 5-MeO DMT. It was such a powerful uh, moment for me because it's the first time in my life that I was able to contextualize and understand why there is evil <laughs> because it's really difficult to believe in God when there's wars and poverty and pedophiles and you know, all the things, right. It was like not an intellectual construct, but an experience within my body and my whole being that was able to see that Again, going back to like, all there is, is God, that that tapestry of God expresses itself infinitely into all possibilities in the earth realm. And that includes Mussolini, Hitler, and Mao. They are actually God too, <laughs> because God's expressing itself infinitely in order to play with these this polarity that, you know, duality where there's a this and there's a that, right? So, okay, back to the ocean, there's the ocean, that's non-duality. Then these waves come up, there's an evil wave over there that subjugates their population as a dictator. And then there's a, you know, a holy mystic over here that expresses its consciousness with absolute pure light and love and is just feeding, you know, feeding the poor their whole life, right? But it's, it's easy for us to get tricked into seeing like, well, that one over there is not God. That one's God. Right. Yeah. But in order for us to come into the body in an incarnation, we need the, the perception of this duality and the, the illusion of separation, because that's what gives us bandwidth to evolve. 
So it's like, there's no point trying to change the world because the world is absolutely perfect just the way it is with all the bullshit we see. If you believe that the intention of an incarnation or the opportunity of an incarnation is to evolve. And that is just absolutely true in my experience because like, had I come in and not experienced the trauma that I did as a kid because other people had free will to abuse me and fuck with me. Right. If I hadn't experienced that and didn't, you know, become an addict and exist in these lower realms of just animal based survival, then there would be no bandwidth for me to evolve up and out of that. Like if I just came in and it was all love and light and there was no duality, it was just all oneness, right? Then there's actually nowhere to go. There'd be no purpose of having an earth <laughs> if there was no way you can learn. And the only way you can learn is by having the duality of a this, a that, a good versus evil, dark versus light. Like it has to exist in order for us to do what we're here to do. Now, maybe in other realms and dimensions where there's not duality, perhaps that's what heaven is. Perhaps you, you do earn through merit, you know, the qualifications to mm. enter your soul, your spirit into higher realms that, that aren't based in this, this dualistic system. But because we're here and it's very clear that that's what we're in, then why and how do we play with that? And how do we actually find peace with that and reconcile that? And, and to me, that brings me a lot more comfort and security and also saves me from wasting my time trying to change the world that's already perfect. And it points the intention of change back to me because if, I, if I'm contextualizing the human experience in that way, and I'm not telling anyone else to do this, this is just my shit um, and things that I've learned through study and experience. But because I get to view the world that way, then it's very interesting to me to be alive and to stay alive because as we were talking about earlier, then I can ferret out those things within myself that are preventing me from my fullest expression. In other words, you know, those situations in, in which I find myself where I could not with a straight face say, Oh, this is all God. Right. Yeah. Like when you're like, fuck this, yeah. I'm out. Like the world sucks. My life sucks. When you're in those moments, it's very hard to see that. But you know, again, like I was saying, you start to find the lessons in the midst of the storm and we're always in the midst of a storm because we're in this duality where this depth of evil and also these uh, limitless expressions of love coexist, right? It's like every flavor of wave rises up out of that ocean, that field of consciousness and if, if it wasn't that way, then there would really be no purpose to be here. So if I'm here and that's the way things are, then what's the purpose? What am I doing here to like make money? What? <laughs> I'm having money is great. It, it makes life a bit easier in some ways. And I'm not opposed to having money. It's great. The more I have, the easier shit seems to get. The more freedom I have, the more options, you know? But like to have that be the purpose of my life? Oh man, <laughs> that sounds really grim. That sounds grim. The only purpose to me that makes sense and actually keeps me interested in being here and doing the thing is to get back into that field of consciousness, that field of love. You know, how can I actually build 
build love into every moment of my life. Even if that means self-love and, and building, putting a boundary up for someone, that's also an expression of love and can be done so firmly and with strength and power and finality, but it's done out of a place of love. And that's what I was saying earlier, like conflict that has truth in it is healing to everyone because ultimately it's motivated by love of oneself that's saying, fuck this, I'm out, you know, you're out, you're fired. <laughs> you know. So yeah, the, 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 these are the things that I sit and think about. And I love, I love doing chats like this because I get, it helps me to really figure it out. Yeah. And, to kind of work it out yeah, on the it fly almost. Build my model because it's like when I leave here, I'll see my dog and I'll just be like, oh man, I love this dog so much. And I'll walk through your house and I'll go, wow, I love this home so much. It's so beautiful. It was built with such care. It was so deliberate and I'll love that. And I'll walk down the driveway and I'll be present and I'll see a bit of the sunset and I'll go, man, I love this. I love this. I love this. I love this. I want to love everything. Just be in that. But if we weren't in a world where the seeming opposite of love existed, then I would have no point of reference to know what love is. I wouldn't know exactly. when I'm like in the love and light because that's all there would be. And, and what a grim world it would be if all there was, was darkness and despair and hopelessness and evil. It can't just be that. No, but you're right. And we do need the, we need the contrast to be able to appreciate what that feeling of love feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all that said, um, being a human is not for the faint at heart, man. And be, being a human that is sincerely, spiritually devoted, that's not the easy path. It's not. I, I really think eating Doritos, drinking Budweiser, watching football, punching in and punching out, blissfully ignorant of everything that we're discussing here today might be an easier path. Yeah. yeah. Of just churning out a, few, a lifetime after lifetime of just kind of existing and not asking questions, right? Like not staring at the stars going, what is this? Why am I here? Why are we here? What do I do? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? I don't know. Some of us are wired to ask those questions and some are. And I think if you are wired to ask those questions, it's really terrifying at times to get them answered because you realize, I mean, for me lately, it's, it's almost been, I don't mean this in a negative sense because I, I enjoy my life and I'm so blessed in so many ways, but I really think the earth is kind of a purgatorial experience. You know, it's a bitch here, man. It's, it's, it's gnarly. It's gnarly. It really is. It, it, it takes um, an incredible degree of fortitude and faith to just know that there is a purpose to all of this and that if it was supposed to be utopia, it would be. And trusting that because it's not, it's not supposed to be. Yeah. And that yeah. the game in this purgatorial place is to find that utopia within myself, right? And just sprinkle it around. Ooh, I found a little nugget right here. Like every interaction I have with another person, an animal, a tree, a house, you know, it's just how, how often can I remember that? And just play along. I'm here, man. They put me in this game. Uh, you know, put me in coach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at some point I must've volunteered for this and what I volunteered for can be fucking gnarly. But because it has the contrast of duality, it also has the capacity to be ecstatic 
and blissful. And, you know, the, I don't have kids yet, but, you know, I can only imagine that when you, when you see a child be born or, you know, some of these rich experiences in life where you just go, man, I wouldn't trade this for anything. It's all worth it. It's all worth being on a planet full of terrorists and rapists and just idiots running it, frankly. You yeah. know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's the thing that, that like makes it appear more purgatorial to me is just when you look at the, the entities that have wrestled control over our civilization and how not only evil they are, but also how inept they're, they're, they're insane and they're evil, but they're also incredibly stupid. Yeah. It's, I mean, if you look at any institution, whether that's education, world monetary policy and finance, uh, the medical practices, the medical industry, um, commerce, uh, all, you know, all of it, business. I mean, everything is retarded, <laughs> you yeah. know, according to me and the way I, I don't know how you fix it. Right. I know how to fix myself a little bit, but it, when I look at these things, I mean, you just turn on whether alternative media news or like fake news. Um, and you just look at the state of things objectively. It's astonishing that the people that are creating and, and, and managing our civilization from above and of the, from the top section of that pyramid are that way. It's a, it's a harsh realization. And that's why I say, man, God, it's, it's, it's not easy being here because for some reason, the, you know, the scales of good and evil seem to really tip heavily in the direction of evil a lot of the time. <laughs> Yeah. Especially you know, in those, those kind of power structures. And I think to your point earlier, if you're eating the Doritos and drinking the bud and that's kind of like, you don't recognize that. And I think as you start to waken up, you start to question things. It just invites more questions and no answers and frustration and the opportunity for true ecstasy and the, the opportunity for true despair, like, holy shit, is this really what we're dealing with here? Yeah. But it's like, do you want to open yourself up to, to creating much greater bandwidth to feel both of those things? Because as you do start to, to question things and, you know, I would say in the last five years, it's, it's been the path I've been on. It's some things have been truly amazing that I never felt like I could ever experience. And some of the most challenging times of my life have happened then. And it's like, oh, I don't know if it would have been like that if I'd have just been going along my, you know, kind of unconscious ways. I mean, the, the term ignorance is bliss uh, has lasted for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? So much truth in yeah. that. But I, 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 re I don't really believe that because I've been numb and unconscious uh, a lot. And there was, there was a lot of suffering in that ignorance, you know, because when I lacked any understanding of why the world is set up like it is and any perspectives to see, maybe even more importantly, that over vast periods of time, even though that duality of good and evil exists, Humanity is ever so slowly creeping up out of animal nature and into a higher state of consciousness, right? But because we just have a snapshot of 
each time period in which we live, I look at the last three years and I'm like, it's the end of the world. Pedophiles run the world. We're done. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's a wrap. Yeah. (laughs) We're fucked. Yet, you know, from zooming out and seeing, oh, well, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that in this country, slavery was legal and in many other places in the world. And in some places it still is. Uh, So that was horrible, obviously. But then it wasn't that long before that, that human beings that seek to dominion over other human beings didn't even come enslave you. They just slaughtered you. Viking hordes and such, right? Yeah. So if you look at, you know, how you can take a piece of land, right? Like you see them cut through a mountain and you see all of these layers of, uh, of, of sediment, right? And you see all the different colors of rock, the whole strata of minerals, right? You can kind of look at the, the long, long, long epochs of time that humanity goes through. And if you kind of slice it down the middle, you can see, man, we've come a long way from just going into the next tribal area and bashing everyone in the head and killing everyone. Then we moved into, well, hey, why don't we take those people and enslave them like farm animals, right? And then thankfully we outgrow that and we become, you know, a little more aligned with goodness and fairness and just our humanity becomes a bit more intact over time. So there will, uh, there will, I think be a time when we look back on this, especially these last three years and we'll go, oh, that's when the good news happened. That's when like these systems that have been so corrupt and so destructive to the well-being of the human civilization as a whole, that's when the cracks, the first cracks in the, in the wall started to appear. Right. And then some of us poke our heads through and there's a little light and some of us crack some more holes in to show more people what's kind of behind Oz's curtain. Right. And then we'll look back, I think, and think, oh, that was the best thing ever that happened because we'll be at a place then, you know, I don't know how long it'll take, maybe thousands of years, who knows, but there'll be a time when the, the period in which we live now will be the dark ages. Just like when we look at the dark ages, uh, you know, in our recent history, we're like, how could people have ever acted like that? And how could have we ever built societies that functioned uh, in such barbaric ways? Well, we're still in many ways functioning as barbaric ways. It's just been hidden. And, and the, those devoted to exploiting other people have kind of existed in the shadows of governments and all of these other institutions. And we all kind of ate Doritos and drank beer and thought, oh, that's cool. You got to pay a little tax here and there, but you know, at least they take care of yeah, me. We've got our representatives. We voted yeah, for them. They keep me safe, you know, and, and now it's like the emperor's clothes are starting to uh, fall off and, you know, vast numbers of people are going, wait, we can do better than this, you know? And so, uh, you know, those are the things that kind of give me hope and make me glad that I've chosen the path as scary as it is sometimes of, of staying as awake as I can and just taking all of this experience as it comes, you know, and, and doing my best not to numb out and evade the parts of it that are painful or scary or uncomfortable. It's just like, give me the whole experience of life or give me nothing. You know, I want it all. And in that from that foundation of surrender, then it's much easier to accept all of it because I know that I'm not in charge. And there's such a small percentage of my experience in the world that can be controlled by me. I mean, it's probably like 
0.0000001% that like I have agency over my thoughts, my feelings, my behavior, my decisions, my actions. There's a little of that, but most of this is just all God playing, playing this game you know, and just putting all of us in a punch bowl and shaking it up and going, come back home, come back home, find your way. Yeah. Good luck. You know, and for every time you come back and find your way a little bit closer and um, you take it all a little less serious, you know, like I was talking about before, everything becomes a little more diffuse. It's like, you ever be, let me ask you this question. I'm going to let you keep talking. I got to go to the bathroom. Okay. You go to the bathroom and I'll talk to the audience. Yeah. I'm going to ask you guys I this. I any longer. I tried. No, that's good. I got it. That's what you, Cal, you asked me three questions in a podcast and you'll get, <laughs> you'll get three hours. But that, that diffuse sort of, um, uh, relationship with reality. Another way I could maybe describe that and why I love that experience so much is that I kind of just don't take things as serious, as seriously as I once did. Right. It's like the letter from the IRS. Oh, the wife wants to talk. I'm, I don't really have too many of those wife talks. Thank God. But just think of anything that you would find, um, triggering, right. That things just become less triggering. And when, when I'm in a place where I'm feeling threatened or afraid or angry or have some kind of uncomfortable or negative emotions, everything is much shorter lived because it's just not all that serious. You know, there's a part of me that knows like, oh, we're just kind of all playing along with this game. And it's like when you're playing a video game, I haven't probably played one since Donkey Kong or something, Pac-Man maybe back in the day. Actually, I played Donkey Kong the other day at the smoothie place. They have an OG uh, video game. It's pretty fun. I, I now suck at it. But when you're playing a video game or say you go to the movies and you're watching a thriller or a horror movie, it's like so scary and so real. Maybe not a video game. Movie's a better example. You're in the movie, the horror movie, the axe murder is about to get them. And it's like your heart rate's going up and your palms are sweating. And it seems so real because your subconscious doesn't know that it's not real. Your conscious mind knows you're safe. You're sitting in a theater, but your subconscious mind is sort of uh, subdued in that moment. And your subconscious is taking this in like you're having the experience. And that's how any good movie should be, right? But the minute you close your eyes or you just turn your head and look at the other people in the theater, it's all gone. You know that it's not real. And so having this sort of playful relationship with one's life, um, I think gives one the ability to just take everything, including oneself, a little less serious. Like Cal gets up to go to the bathroom. I just start riffing with the camera. I don't really care. I'm not worried about it. It's like, it's a passing moment in time. And, you know, it's like what people listening or watching think don't matter. I'm just, I'm having fun and I'm going to walk out of here and this will be history and this will get published someday and that'll be history. It's like the things that are meaningful become more meaningful and the things that are not ultimately meaningful become relatively insignificant. And the benefit of that loose relationship with reality and just kind of a surrendered perspective is that I find more and more all the time, I have more joy. I'm just happier. You know, it's like when you look at the Dalai Lama or, you know, a monk or someone who's much more spiritually devoted than, than I am, right? Someone who's kind of a renunciate, uh, who's devoted their life to living in a cave in the Himalayas. And you go, oh my God, how are they so happy, man? They're not worried about anything. It's just, they've just taken what I just described further. That's all. 
right? It's like the same world that they're living in. They're just not bothered by it because they don't take it that seriously. And one of the most fun things about not taking life too seriously for me is not taking myself too seriously. And that means not taking it seriously when I have a great win or success, being grateful for it doesn't go to my head, but it also doesn't go to my head when I screw up tremendously and make mistakes. It's like there's a built-in forgiveness and understanding because I realize that I'm just not that important. <laughs> my problems are not that important. And so that, that kind of way of being in the world where one is engaged yet at the same time, kind of removed from it. Uh, I think somewhere in the Bible, it talks about um, wearing the world like a loose garment. I love that. I think it's a Jesus thing. Um, wearing the world like a loose garment. It's like, you know, it can come on and off. It's like non-attachment. If you're going from the Buddhist perspective, it's like living in a state of non-attachment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one doesn't take action. It means that you take action, but you're not attached to the result of the action because it's in the results that we suffer. Well, I think that's such an important part. Thank you, by the way, for dropping into a solo cast there for <laughs> yeah. a bit. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I didn't take a dump. I just made a bag. That's why it took me a while. So. Oh, okay, good. You didn't go number two. Oh, I'm glad you made a bag. No, I was just talking about... Um, you know, growing into not taking life that seriously. And, and as a result, you're included in life. So you're not taking yourself that seriously. And there's a lot of peace to be mined from that perspective of having a loose relationship with all of this reality and letting go of not only the big attachments, like, oh my God, I hope my parents never die. You know, those big ones, right? But even letting go to the little attachments, like you have to step out of the room I could be attached to you needing to be there and then I could get really awkward, but I'm not attached to that. If you walk out, then it's, I'm having the same experience as I am. If you're sitting there, I mean, maybe not as fun. There we go. I appreciate that. Yeah. that you know what I mean? yeah. But I think what you're talking about, you, when you talk about attachment and what you were, were saying, really, we get so attached to outcomes that we think we want in our, in our ideal in arguably when we are just in the process, we are just, in, I mean, really deep presence of what's happening right now in this moment. And there's actually no real outcome. It just leads to another experience and another experience. And we're not um, tying our joy towards what we land on. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. that's when I felt the freest in my life. When I stopped it could be something as simple as I'm investing in this thing and I want it to return this much, you know, in, in, in kind of comparison to that, when I've just stepped into uh, a, a financial opportunity that I love what this particular person is doing. And I want to be a part of this journey that they're creating and, Yes, you want to ha do your due diligence and hope that it has a positive return, but I'm not getting into it to make money. That's part of it. But really what I want to be engaged in is things that are fun, that bring me joy, that are, that are additive to the world and to my experience and to share that with others. And that's like when I started to change my investment thesis from the, the former to that, everything just got more fun. And I, and I, you know, I've spoken about this before, but 
I would actually start to almost grieve the, the, the time when that investment would be done and the company would be sold and I was no longer a part of it. Mm, like, that's interesting. Oh. Like that's all I was shooting for before. Like yeah, I sell this yeah, fucker yeah. and yeah. make some money. And now it's yeah. like, I don't, you know, whether it's gel blaster, which I, it's been so amazing to be a part of that and calling Gwyn's vision with that and how he's brought so many of us along the journey with him or feel free, which, you know, JW really well. I mean, that's been so fun for me. And I, I feel like there are, there are these things, these opportunities that when you, when you, unattached to an outcome, it just becomes fun. And again, like yeah. the outcome actually can, can, can bring upon some sort of grieving because it's that ride is over. Yeah. Yeah. One of my teachers used to tell me when I'd be upset about something because it wasn't going quotes my way. <clears throat> He'd say, man, you're in the results business again. He said, you're not, you're not supposed to be in the results business you're in the take action business, you know, and it's just, it's simple, but in practice, it's difficult, you know, because of those attachments to outcome. But that, you know, that also goes back, what you're saying goes back to, uh, what one's kind of core intention for their life is. And there's not, it's not good or bad, right or wrong. I mean, one could have the intention in this lifetime, all I care about is making money. And I'm going to do that thing. And then eventually they'll probably learn like, wow, I'm sitting in this big house divorced and it didn't do what I thought it was going to do or becoming famous or something like that. Right. But what the real fun is, and just is having the idea, uh, identifying the opportunity and, and doing the work involved in it, in that moment, the fun, as you said, um, can end when the result comes to fruition because now you're not doing the thing anymore. You know, this is like that conundrum of retirement. You know, so many people, especially I think men get really depressed when they retire, they don't know what to do with themselves and so on. And I've always said like, Hey, I'd, I would know what to do. <laughs> you know, if I had all that free time, but maybe I wouldn't, you, you have to have, I think some sense of purpose. Right. And when, when your purpose, at least what, what mine is, is to, evolve spiritually as a soul here on earth and to alleviate suffering for as many people as I can and to help light the path for other people who are, are on a similar path. Uh, when that's my purpose, then there's much less attachment to the outcome of anything. And having a few years here on the planet, I'm going to be 53 this year. Dude, if I would have gotten the things that I really wanted earlier in life, I've pondered this a lot. A good example of that would be, you know, I was a musician and I wanted to be a famous rock star. Not even so much about the being famous. I just wanted the money of a famous rock star and the freedom to not have to have a job. <laughs> you know, I want my job to be just touring around making music. And so in my, you know, in my early twenties and probably through my mid thirties, I mean, that was the objective because I had attached to it, this idea that I would have this life of freedom and abundant sex and, uh, you know, all of the things that were my idealistic vision of this life as a, as a successful musician. And dude, had I achieved that, I never would have met the spiritual mentors that came into my life. I never would have been, um, faced with some of the other incredible difficulties that I did 
around uh, my relationship to money and uh, sex and romantic relationships, like all of the things that I learned in the past 10 or 15 years, I would have missed. Like had I been, quote, successful at the, the initial dream, I mean, I, maybe, you know, my life could have unfolded in an infinite number of ways and it could have been beautiful too. And maybe it would have been, but the perfection with which my life has played out has led me to the most beautiful place I've ever been because I didn't get what I wanted. I got some other shit, <laughs> you know? And some of it felt like shit. Yeah. And the, you know, the other shit was like, you know, even in my former career, I used to be a fashion stylist in, in uh, Hollywood. So I used to dress celebrities for different things. And I did that for a really long time. And it was just like, well, I don't have any education. I had no skills. So I fell into it and I was like, well, this is pretty good for dropping out of high school. I'm making decent money. It's looks good on paper, you know, so it's, it's not bad to tell someone on your first date, what do you do? It was better than when I used to say, well, I'm a drug dealer. I wait <laughs> tables on the side. I was like, oh, I'm a celebrity stylist. Like it sounded cool. It was an ego boost, but I really was never truly passionate about it. But because it's what I was doing, I always wanted to be more successful. Like I, I couldn't quite get to where my peers were, you know, and I kind of watched them skate by me, probably because they truly had a passion for it. I had a little talent, but not very much passion. Those that were very successful, um, I, I think I could assume that they had an equal share of talent and passion and thus they were successful. So I used to think, oh man, I had all these goals. I got to get the big agent, be a big stylist. I need bigger celebrities doing red carpet, yada, yada. And, and it just never really clicked for me. And if it had, I'd be doing it right now, probably making a bunch of money and being like famous in that little microcosm of, a, of an industry. And then I never would have started my podcast and I never would have had all of the incredible opportunities I've had now to really express like the real me, the, the authentic me, uh, and to do for a living what I believe I'm here to do. In other words, to have my, I think that it, a great measure of success is like, if your talent and your passion are in the same place and they're relative to one another, right? Cause you watch something like American Idol. I used to watch this just to trip on the human phenomenon of seeing someone who had an immense amount of passion, but no talent or at least no marketable talent. I mean, talent's subjective to be honest, but you watch someone, they can't sing, they're off key. They're everyone's like wincing when they open their mouth. Yet that person firmly believes in their dream and in their abilities because they are so passionate but for someone to be successful at anything, you have to have some innate talent and continue to cultivate that talent and be passionate. So had I been successful at any of those other ventures before, I wouldn't have been the me that I am now where I love what I do. I love the work that I do. I love the impact that I have. I love the way that uh, the work that I do keeps me growing and evolving constantly. You know, I'm just always working on some part of myself, whether it's personally or professionally, because my personal and professional life is one thing, you know, and it's a, it's a really interesting life to have and it's, it's dynamic and it's fun and it's challenging as shit. And had I gotten what I wanted, I wouldn't be doing that. You know, I wouldn't be doing that. I, I really feel like my, you know, why I was created as this person is to be doing what I'm doing, sitting here right now, just like 
sharing ideas. Well, I think that's the beauty of, and you've been in the podcast um, game a lot longer than me, but I think that's the beauty of, of sitting where we sit is we have these conversations and we explore all these ideas with whoever comes on our podcast. We don't, we didn't really know what we had an idea of maybe what we might talk about. Who knew that me bringing up your house reno was going to take us down this path, but that's the beauty of it. Right. And it becomes this like kind of deep, learning this deep study into whatever comes up on that particular day. And because people are listening, you need to be as clear as you can. And as you said earlier, you kind of work out on the fly, like, well, how, how, what's this, what do I really, how do I feel about this? What's my experience? What's the architecture around that? And then it helps just bring that more into your awareness. And it'll be interesting to see like, when we leave today and we're actually going on a hike with the guys, like what kind of unfolds from here, just given the conversation that you and I had today. Well, for me, man, uh, in these kind of situations and which is what a lot of my work is, is these kind of situations, conversations with people talking, writing, making videos, whatever. If I'm being authentic and real and honest and, and my heart's in it. And I'm, I'm loving on myself and loving on the people that I'm sharing space with. It's like the most potent healing medicine for me. Just, it's the language of the heart. That's what they call it in, in 12 step recovery. It's the language of the heart. You know, when I was um, newly sober, well, and well into decades of being sober, you know, I'd go to, uh, to meetings and there is something so healing about someone up in the front of the room or in a, in a sharing circle, just being honest and authentic and, and sharing the depth of their humanity in, in a vulnerable, open, honest way. Just being in the presence of that is instructive. It's uplifting. It's nourishing. So to be, to having built a life and, you know, a brand around doing that, it's just, it's just a continuation of me being a newcomer sitting in a meeting, you know, and hearing someone with 30 years talk about what it's like, like to live life in their shoes and to take cues from that and go, oh, okay, there's a principle I can apply. There's a truth in there. I'm going to use that it's to the, the integration, right? The application of an idea It's just sharing ideas for the sake of sharing them can kind of get into a mental masturbation, right? It's like, what's the intention behind it? Why am I doing it? What is in it for me and the other people listening? That's, that's one reason I like kind of open-ended conversations like this without any strict agenda and without any time limits or corporate sponsors or too strict of a host. These are kind of my favorite. I just get to wind myself up and see where it goes, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's like the, the third ear is learning. I'm, I'm learning from myself in that whatever's coming through me doesn't originate in me. So if any truth or any, any wisdom or something of value that can be applied in, in my life outside of this, if it comes through, like I'm learning it, I'm learning from myself, wherever that, you know, hopefully wisdom comes from. And that's, I think cool that's thing. how we really learn when it comes from within. Cause then that's the truth. You know, I can get some ideas from you, from the conversation with Lindsay, whoever, but unless I like, it comes out of me and maybe I don't need to technically speak it, but 
that certainly helps. And to hear, like you said, that third ear of hearing yourself say the thing, the witness. Oh yeah, actually I do feel that way. And that is within me. And you know, it's, it, this whole thing reminds me of, you know, I was on with my therapist, I think it was last week. We we're talking about ego and soul. And she's like, when, you know, kind of picture yourself when you feel like your soul is leading. And it's, it's the, the, the first thing came to mind is when I sit down to do a podcast, like the ego now it's present as you mentioned, but when I'm in it, the soul just leads and there's a, there's an openness, there's an acceptance the nervous system is settled. Time disappears. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one, like, well, that's one uh, aspect that's indicative of flow state, right? Whether that's you're, it. you know, downhill skier, skydiver, whatever, right? Like people chase these thrills to get in that place of timelessness and spaciousness. And I don't find that that much in that type of activity, but I find it in just connecting with another soul and just having a heart to heart. And articulating ideas that are, are things that many people probably just have going on internally, but for whatever reason, they're not wired to be motivated to articulate it to other people. It's just, you know, I mean, there's it's no accident we have designated pieces of land for recreation, recreation. Like people go to the park and go for a walk and feed the ducks for a reason. They're having their own contemplative practice. I think many of them, right? Like, why do we like to go to the ocean? We like to be around beauty. We go to cathedrals, we go to art galleries and museums. Like there's something that we all share. And that's kind of that deeper inquiry within ourselves. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing here? What's our purpose? And some of us just like to run our mouths about it which is the case for me, you know, I don't, I don't, Hand up. I don't mean that to be self-deprecating, but it's just like, this is how I hash this shit out that, that comes to me in my life experience. Just like when you went to the bathroom, I was describing just how things bother me less that a very short time ago would have bothered me a lot. And so I have that experience, but until I articulate it, it doesn't really get cemented in. It's like when I speak it to existence, wow. Yeah, that's really true. I really kind of, I'm, I'm getting more like a duck in terms of the water rolling off its back and not getting saturated by my life experience. Even in this purgatorial challenging world that we're in, it's still kind of like, eh, it's, it's nothing's that big of a deal. It'll all pass. It's all just fluid and dynamic and ever evolving and changing. And I, I can feel that within myself, but if I don't ever tell anyone or write it down or speak it, it's, it, it's not as tangible, you know, when I explain it to someone, uh, whether one person or a few people on a recording, then it's like, oh, now I get it. Now I, I'm, I'm integrating it. It's part of the integration of that awareness. There's a contemplation of like, wow, I'm kind of viewing the world this way. My experience is evolving and changing in so many ways, but it remains a bit nebulous for me, at least just the way I'm wired until I kind of codify it and document it. And then it becomes like a real working part of my repertoire. Yeah. I mean, th these are, <clears throat> I mean, listen, th these are therapy sessions for, for both of us. Yeah. And I haven't cried yet. I usually cry in every podcast. Oh shit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll have to get you next time. I you almost were crying because of the build last time. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I haven't tapped into that, that deep thread, you know, that, uh, haven't found the gold in the, in the mine. No. Well, well, I had, uh, Mark England on, do you know, Mark? I don't believe so. he, 
come out with a, a something called Procabulary. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh. And then into in the Enlifted Method, I believe it's called. I have heard murmurs of this, yes. Yeah, and it's a little bit like, for lack of a better term, it's a little bit like um, NLP. And I would even say it's an NLP for dummies. It's very accessible. It makes a ton of sense. And it, you don't have to spend, you know, whatever it is, six grand on a weekend. But like, anyway, Mark was great. And what he talks about is exactly what you're saying. Like, when you speak it, it becomes a 30% greater likelihood that you'll integrate it. If you write it down, it goes to 50%. And then if you teach it, right? And in some ways we get to yeah. teach a little bit here. Yeah. It goes to 80%. So you actually oh, just said it. You so said good. speak, write, and share. Yeah. And that's, so good. that's what he talks about. So good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I guess it's like because I came. I was really raised by the 12 steps. I mean, that's like how I grew up, right? Because I was emotionally maybe 12 years old at 26 when I got sober. So the uh, practice of listening to other people talk who have more wisdom and experience than me, taking what they say and doing it, and then telling someone else who has less experience and wisdom than I what I did and watching them apply it and do it. And this chain, you know, uh, of like a lineage of sponsors within the 12 step context, that's how that would kind of play out. But that's just how I've been trained to, uh, to grow and function, you know? And so it's, it's no accident that I ended up kind of doing what I do for a living, but I don't know how else I could, I could learn stuff really, you know, it's like, yeah. Speak, you know, having, having a contemplative time where ideas can kind of spill around and writing some of them down, then sharing them, putting them into action. And then I don't like the word teaching so much because I don't think of myself as like a teacher, but more of a student. But I guess for some people, uh, I, I might be teaching them, but to, to, to share it and to be able to contextualize it is when it really gets cemented in you know, to, to the point of, of your friend who built a, you know, a model around this. Yeah. To become good at anything you want to teach it. I even notice, um, when I'm teaching Allison guitar, sometimes she has her own teacher. So, you know, <laughs> not stepping on her toes, but every once in a while I'll be in the house and I'm just like, I just want to see her do some cool shit. So I'm like, here, make an A minor, you know, and then I'll teach her a couple of things and I'm like, Oh shit. I actually know a lot about the guitar. I just don't know it because I never teach anyone. I'm not a guitar teacher. Yeah. yeah, but the minute I start to show someone even just a couple of things, like, oh shit, there was a time when I didn't know how to do that. And now I do, you know, it's beautiful. And it's, it's part of, um, legacy, right? It's like, I, again, I don't have kids yet. I really hope to bring that into my experience soon. Um, like any day now, God, hello. Like, how about today? Right now? Ready? <laughs> Putting it out there again. Hello. <laughs> I'll surrender it, but really, come on now. <laughs> um, I can only imagine, you know, that legacy of, of teaching your own, your offspring, your kids, you know, it's just like my kids have been guys who are new in recovery and I'm, you know, helping them to become a little more awake to who they really are, you know, but there's, um, there's really nothing like, I don't, you know, again, not the word teaching, but there, there's really nothing like being of service. You know, if your gift of service happens to be in helping people awaken to who they are. I mean, that's super fulfilling, but if I was a, a you know, a 
journeyman, if I was a Mason who was showing someone how to build that wall out, I would probably wrest a similar satisfaction out of that, out of that sharing and out of that service. You know, I think it's just, it's really empowering to share things that, you know, that you've refined and put, you know, some real effort and, and time and care into. It's a really, it's a good feeling that kind of apprenticeship relationship, the lineage of apprenticeship. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Well, look, we've, we're, we got to meet the guys. Okay. So we're going to wrap. So you can find Luke, the lifestylist podcast with Luke story. Yes, sir. Where can they find you on Instagram? I'm, I'm on the podcast every Tuesday, rain or shine. Uh, Instagram at Luke story. S T O R E Y is my last name. And then your website is just Luke story. Story.com. Yeah. Yes, sir. Find all the things there. Yeah. Great having you on brother. It's my real name too, by the way. It's, it's funny though. Thank you for having me on. Um, (laughs) You know how like uh, in the English names of old, someone's name like shoemaker and their, their dad made shoes and they make shoes, you know, they named me Luke story. It was just so funny that that's my family name. And found at least my calling thus far that seems the most aligned and essentially telling stories. Yeah. Look at that. And, and eliciting stories out of other storytellers. Look at you. Yeah. So Very on brand. That's what I do. Thanks brother. You've been listening to the great unlearn for more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.